Hey, I'm Genevieve Mora, co-founder of Voices of Hope, and you're listening to A Moment With. A Moment With is a series that delves deep into people's lived experience of mental health, sharing their struggles whilst also highlighting the tools and lessons they've learned along the way. Our hope is that by hearing these stories, you find hope, feel empowered, and less alone in your fight. Today, a moment with Michelle. I think, looking back now, I had some traits and characteristics that may not have been that normal. I wasn't that easygoing child. I had had already so much on my shoulders at, at that age. In this episode, we discuss trauma, depression, and PTSD. Your mental well-being is important to us, so if anything comes up for you while you're listening, you can find support in the show notes. Remember, you do not have to do this alone. Hello, Michelle, and welcome to A Moment With. I am really excited to be chatting to you today. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Jen, and so nice to be here. Thanks for having me. You are so, so welcome. Um, Again, it's an honour to have your voice and to have you here today being a voice of hope to all our listeners. We met, I think it was 2020, uh, when you asked me to come and speak at uh, your Mental Health Awareness Week at your workplace. And what I loved about you from the moment I met you is you were so kind and empathetic and engaging and funny. Um, I just instantly knew that I liked you and I thought you were a great person. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you. Thank you. And here we are, reconnecting for this wonderful podcast. When I contacted you and I said, hey, Michelle, we'd love to have you come and share your story on a moment with, why did you say yes? Because it's a really vulnerable thing to do to come and talk about your mental health. Yeah, absolutely. It's the fact that I still can't quite believe that I get asked to do such great stuff like this because I guess it's never ever felt like anything more than doing what's right to help others and, and who are struggling with their own mental health. And I guess I want to be that person for others that that I couldn't be for myself back then. You know, like, I, I felt really alone. And so for me, I don't want anyone to feel like that. I love that. And you mentioned on the call yesterday when you started at your, your workplace and you started sharing your story publicly that you felt like a safe place was created for you to do so. And I think you're definitely going to do that for people today. Um, and I know from our pre-call also, you know, I knew you as Michelle, this bubbly, lively person, which you are, but I was so, uh, I don't even know if overwhelm is the right word, but it just reminded me that you never, ever know what people are going through. And hearing your story of resilience and challenge and struggle and hope um, was something that's really inspired me so I'm really excited to be able to do that for our listeners today. Thank you. Let's talk about your childhood. What was life like growing up for you? Sure that's a um, big question. Yeah (laughs) but a good place to start. Um, So I moved to New Zealand from the Philippines when I was eight years old and I guess I, I come from a really large family so I've got 10 aunts and uncles you know 30 odd cousins and I'm the eldest of four kids. And when I came here from the Philippines, I guess just imagine an eight-year-old with broken English or no English whatsoever mm-hmm. <laughs> trying to find an, their place in the world. And when your life has just been, I don't know, turned upside down and you move to a completely different country in the middle of like starting primary school and whatnot, it was it was it was hard, but. Uh, you know, ultimately it was the best thing for us to do to move from Philippines to to New Zealand because a lot of my family were already here. And and between the age of eight and ten, 
I, I experienced some some trauma, <laughs> for lack of a better word, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was traumatic. Um, but I, I guess I didn't quite come to terms with it until quite recently, to be honest. So I experienced some trauma between, you know, the ages of 8 and 10. And then I didn't actually start school in New Zealand until I was 10. With no English? <laughs> no. like Or just very limited English? Limited, very limited English. Um, it was just trying to, like, absorb everything, you know, from books and magazines and mm. <laughs> the dictionary. Was TV a, was shows? Was key one. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Dictionary. <laughs> wow, you read the dictionary. <laughs> Um, not all of it, but yeah, and no, so I just um, I tried to do my best to assimilate into the culture and f- feel like you know belonged because that's something that I've just never ever felt. You know, I didn't grow up with a dad. Um, my mum and my dad separated when I was I think two or very very early on, and so I've never met him. My mum was also when we were back in the Philippines, she was travelling quite a lot, so she wasn't really around. And so I lived with various people all throughout my life. I'd never had like a place I could call home. And that that theme carried on actually (laughs) for quite a while. So as I said, I started primary school at 10 and that was in a small town called Whakatane on the east coast of New Zealand. So that's um, where my stepdad lived. And and (laughs) yeah, you can imagine... (laughs) School wasn't the easiest, mm-hmm. right? So I remember coming into school and just looking completely different to begin with. Like, there weren't a lot of Asian people there. It was just, um, you know, I was one of a handful, so I, I didn't really fit in. But also, I think looking back now, I had some traits and characteristics that may not have been that normal, you know? Right, I wasn't that easygoing child. I had had already so much on my shoulders at at that age. Well, like you said, you had the trauma. You'd moved countries. Yeah. You were you were trying to find a <laughs> sense of belonging, and I guess in some regards, a sense of identity too, which are such crucial parts to being on top of our well being. Yeah, exactly. So that's identity. I I've never felt like I had one until. I started doing this um, mental health advocacy work, but we'll get to that. So, yeah, I was at that time during primary school, you know, experiencing quite a bit of bullying because I I guess I was a bit weird and I looked weird and my lunch smelt weird as well. All unique <laughs> and special. And so um, living, you know, in a small town where I was one of a handful of Asian kids at my school and I was desperate to be to fit in and be liked... But at the same time, not knowing this at the time, I was grappling with really complex emotions, which I didn't understand, right? So um, I would get such, so much anxiety sometimes that it would be crippling. Mm-hmm. Like, it would feel like your stomach was constantly in knots. Yeah, but you had no idea what that was. No, no idea. So I was like going, oh, why do I feel like this? Like, I just feel on edge all the time, like... I just didn't belong. I'd never felt like I belong, and that's such a critical human human thing to feel like you belong. It's a human need, isn't it? Well, exactly, right? Um, and so I was just kind of like floating around, you know, and I add to that I didn't get along with my stepdad. He was quite old school, like very old school in the way that he um, brought us up. It was like going back in a time machine to a mm. time when, like, kids were definitely 
seen but not heard. Yep. Like it was like that. And I'd experienced already a little bit of that from my childhood in, in the Philippines because that is that tends to be the, the cultural dynamic over there as well. Is, you know, you really respect your elders and you you do, you know, what they want you to do. Um, by the time I'd met my stepdad, I was incredibly independent. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. I'd already built up a big personality and, and had a lot of baggage. Because you've gone through so much at such a young age. Yeah, and my mum being an immigrant, she, you know, her English wasn't great and she was also grappling, I guess, with like trying to find her place in the world. You know, she didn't have a job and um, it was difficult. So you talk about during your childhood years feeling really alone struggling to know where you belong and, and where you fit it in. How did this feed or flow into your teenage years? <laughs> um, so because I was different, I was bullied persistently from the age of 10 to 15. I just remember certain things like when other kids would go out and, you know, be excited about having lunch with their friends and playing in the playground and all of that sort of stuff. I was just like racked with so much anxiety because I knew that you know no one well at least I felt like no one wanted to hang out with me and so I was like well, what do I do with myself I don't want to be just like sitting by myself outside yeah. and so I would just escape right so I had a couple of escape <laughs> options I'd go to the library yeah and I'd just bury myself in books because that was an escape right mm. You mentioned that you said you felt like you could live another life or live yeah. the life of the characters. And I think that's the beauty of reading, right? And you get lost in it and you forget about, I guess, your own <laughs> your own um, issues. So that was, you know, that was what I did. Um, and I used to journal when I was young and that was my way of getting my thoughts down, mm-hmm. right? And it was kind of gave a lot of what I was thinking some meaning to yep. me. I remember I, um, my stepdad, <laughs> he found my journal under the bed. Oh, okay. And instead of going, you know, as you do, leave it there. That's private. It's not my business. <laughs> yeah. He read it. He wow. read all of it. And yeah, that was, that was a big turning point for me because instead of, you know, wrapping his arms around me and giving me that support, because now he knew now he knew what was going on for you he just was like what is this you know what, what are you writing about um this isn't real like th- this sort of stuff doesn't really you know like you've got a good life um so you felt no validation no exactly and i think i guess it wasn't so much about him needing to understand what i was going through but just being there for me right yeah just being someone that i could listened to and I'd never had that as for in my parents and then after that he 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 didn't like that I had a job in a cafe and was making my own money at the age of 15 you know my, my pocket money being independent as yeah. you said you always had to be yeah so he I don't think he he really liked that maybe it was a threat to him or make to you know his ability to control us but there came a point where he, he asked my boss to um to fire me or let me go <laughs> and I remember turning up for work the next day after school and um, and my boss going, yeah, I, I just told him that, yep, yep, all good, we'll do that. And then, you know, 
have a conversation with you about it because I'm not going to take anything that he has to say on board. Like, was was work for you a safe place? Was it a place that you felt like you belonged, or was it just a place that you felt like you had some enough control over your life is the right word, but a place to just be yourself? Absolutely, I think um, it was my first job in you know school and. And I met lots of new people and I got to, you know, learn some new skill, life skills. You know, working in a cafe is not always the easiest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, yeah, as I said, it, it did feel like a bit of an escape from my home life and my school life. And so I made lots of great friends while I was working in a cafe and really kind of blossomed. Yeah. And then for that to be taken away from me or the prospect of it being taken away from me just felt gut-wrenching and and um and then some other things um that you know just all happened at once perfect storm really and I remember just feeling so worthless you know for those I guess who don't understand depression or what that feels like when someone is in that place you know it's not because they want to die it's because you know that that ongoing relentless darkness and hopelessness can be too painful to endure. So um, there was this point, and I'll never forget it. I had this like massive Nokia brick phone. <laughs> <laughs> I remember the ones, <laughs> <laughs> and it was my first phone with snake um, on it. Yes, yes I remember yeah. the ones. <laughs> they were yeah, they were amazing. Um, did the job. Did the job. So <laughs> remember, I had this clunky big Nokia brick phone. It was my f- first cherished item <laughs> from like many um, months of working at a cafe <laughs> and and um I felt it vibrating in my in my pocket and I was like go away go away go away you know <laughs> and then it kept going it was like far out this person's persistent it kept going and um it was my now foster dad I consider him a foster dad and what had happened was I, I knew I needed a way out mm-hmm. And so one of the first options I I, um, I looked to was to ring my friend from school who also had that f- foster family that was just awesome, and I'd stay with them in the weekends sometimes. And they were the first people I thought of mm. when I was like, where do I go? What do I do? Like, no one, want, I guess I didn't feel wanted, so I was like, I doubt they're going <laughs> to want like want this burden on their shoulders. But anyway, I'd call they them. They did. Yeah. I called them. And I said, hey, this is what's happening. This is how I'm feeling. You know, I need somewhere to stay even just for a little while until I figure it out. And um, they're like, you know, absolutely, you know, absolutely um, come and stay over or come pick you up. And just all the things you wanted to hear, right, from supportive people. And then it was um, after that, I that's where I went for that walk. Mm -hmm. (laughs) A very, you know, very, I thought, solid plan in mind. But um, then, you know, my phone rang and it was them. It was um, Jim, my foster dad again. And he was like, hey, I just wanted to check in on you and just see how you're going. You didn't sound great, you know, when we spoke earlier. Just, you know, pack up your stuff and we'll come and grab you, you know. Wow. Um, there there are people here that care about you. And, and that, was, that was a turning point in my life, I guess, you know. And what a time for that call to happen. Exactly. That's why I've never, ever forgotten it. To get that phone call and just feel like someone cared must have been life-changing. Yeah, it, it was. It was literally someone pulling me from the edge. Yeah. Um, and 
One thing that stuck out to me as I started doing this advocacy work is it was just a phone call. It was literally just a phone call. It was just such an unjudgmental, caring thing to do. And it just, you know, it shaped my world, really. He drove me around everywhere mm-hmm, and... Mm-hmm. Always a listening ear if always, you needed him. Oh my gosh, like just the most amazing human being. And, you know, regardless of where I, I was, he was always there and I knew I could call him and that was enough for me. Yeah. That was enough to give me strength. Yeah. And so, you know, from 16 to the point where I was um, 18 and ready to go to uni, I was, I was literally, I went from different foster homes to different foster homes and I was um, only able to get by because I'd been emancipated from my family and so I was able to get what they call the independent youth benefit which gave you some money to pay for board and stuff and And I was also working in a cafe um, (laughs) for peanuts but (laughs) the most formative years of your life as well what a lot to go through yeah I think so Jim was always there. He was always there. He still is, you know. Yeah. He still is. Um, all throughout my life, he's he's a rock, a little rock. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he had his own kids as well. But he he would always be there for me, and he would make very clear to other people that I was part of his life and his family. Yeah. You started uni at the age of was it around eighteen, straight after high school? Yeah. So I went to to university um, when I was eighteen. So I went to Otago, which was the furthest thing, furthest place away. Yeah, you moved away from <laughs> everything, well. yeah. all of it, and then um, I moved there. And then that first year of uni, it was like a reality check, like another reality check. It was just a different world all over again, and I was overwhelmed. Right. I was excited, but I was overwhelmed. And so I went to see the uni, like, I guess, psychologist. And um, that was when I was diagnosed with um, clinical depression, anxiety and PTSD. I guess getting that diagnosis, how did that feel for you? It felt, I think you used the word for validating. It's so powerful to be able to label or, or know what it is that you're feeling so that you know how, better how to deal with it, I guess. Right? Yeah, I understand. And when that. you can't explain what you're going through, it makes you feel even more lost out at sea. <laughs> and <laughs> possibly alone too, because yeah. you don't know again where you fit. Exactly. And so that was a huge moment for me, you know. And then I started on medication to try and get me on an even keel, right? Because it was a lot of chemicals in my brain that weren't quite. <laughs> Yep, chemical imbalance and all about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then um, I started going on, you know, um, antidepressants or anti-anxiety medication and to just get me on that even keel. And and that really helped me. Look, it's not for everyone, but it really helped me kind of gain that sense of, like, clarity again because your head is just one massive, like, blur. And we work through, obviously, other techniques such as, um, you know, acceptance, commitment therapy and... Um, cognitive behavioural therapy and um, thought field therapy. There were so many different types of therapy. Yeah, <laughs> It was a hard journey, but then I got there and um, my mission became to raise awareness, you know, and to show others that recovery is absolutely possible and that there is no shame, no shame at all in admitting that you need help. I know, you know, firsthand, I know exactly how it feels to be trapped, you know, inside your own mind, <laughs> fighting invisible battles that no one else can see, but yet still showing up mm-hmm. every day, mm-hmm. showing up and being there for other people. I think that takes a huge amount of strength. 
that oh, I think right. people need to realise, you know? Um, looking after yourself and, and understanding more about your mental health or even just acknowledging that, you know, you're not always good all the time, it's not weak. No, no. <laughs> it doesn't make you any less of a person, you know? And, and wanting to get better, better, in my mind, should be a cause for celebration. Yeah, I completely agree. It's not weak. It's human. I think, like you said, we all go through difficult times and, you know, we can't compare our struggles to other people. And you've been through a lot in your lifetime. And to see you here and smiling and using your story of hope and, like I said, resilience and courage and and, and being vulnerable and sharing has and will continue to create that safe place for other people. You recently won an award for this work. Can we talk about that? Because I think that is such a testament to the person you are and the journey you've been on, and I think we need to celebrate that. Yeah. Um, so Headfit Awards um, is New Zealand's first national workplace mental health awards program, and it was developed by the Headfit Foundation. And um, when this award came out, or the opportunity to be nominated for it, I remember I was like, oh, I'm not going to nominate myself. Like, I didn't even think about it. And somebody sent me the link and say, says, I think you should, I think Fontero should nominate you for this. And then I was like, no, I don't really want to be telling people to nominate me for awards and stuff. <laughs> it doesn't feel right. And so in actual fact, what happened was him and another really amazing person that I work with put together a, an amazing nomination for me and got quotes from like, you know, the CEO and all these key people in the business that I'd worked with. And it was amazing. I still get very um, emotional when I think about the things that they wrote because you just never expect that, right? Like, you're just like, far out. This is what people think of me, finally. Yeah. Finally, yeah. I feel like I have a place in and the world. And people respect me and they see me. Yeah. So the, the, the award that I actually won was called the um, Lived Experience Leadership Award. It was very meaningful in the sense that it was recognising an individual, you know, staff member in the business who has gone above and beyond to help improve mental health in the workplace by using their own lived experience. Which is a huge, huge thing to do. Yeah, absolutely. And really, it just shows the power, right? The power of using your lived experience with like mental illness or mental distress, neurodiversity and showing that leadership by like role modeling that it's okay to reduce stigma and and drive those really positive mental health conversations in the workplace and I was really humbled you won that you did that yeah I mean when I stood in that auditorium right and and told my story for the first time and being completely paralyzed by self-doubt and ashamed about what I was about to share I came to realize that you know by allowing myself to be vulnerable and sharing that story that I was creating a safe space for others to open up and know that they're not alone. So, you know, the, the work, the advocacy work that I do gives my life so much meaning and, and it gives me that chance to get better every day. At the same time, you know, I was unknowingly paving the way for other people who were still waiting to find their voice. And every year at your workplace over Mental Health Awareness Week, you have seen people find their voice. There will be people that are listening to this episode that can relate to aspects of your journey or, or struggling with their own mental health and fighting their own battles. Throughout your journey, you talked about journaling, you talked about medication and therapy. Was there anything else that really stood out to you as something that really helped you and supported you? I guess we've got to add Jim to that list too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like to be honest, I still read a lot. I still read 
a heck of a lot. I've got a huge like library in my <laughs> in my room. But the thing that I do is I will have a couple of really key people that know me well, that have seen me at my worst. And I will literally just pick up the phone and give them a call and say, hey, and then I'll just talk it through what I'm feeling because it takes the power away from it, right, from all those thoughts because they're just thoughts. Completely. Completely. And, And by saying them out loud to somebody, you're not giving them more power, I guess. You're kind of... Taking control taking of them. Taking control. Or owning them yep. and saying, you know, I've, I've got yep. you. Yep. <laughs> or, or sometimes you're like, man, that doesn't sound so silly now when I say it out loud. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> In my head, it was this massive thing. And, right, and yeah, anyway, that is one thing that I will do without a doubt. Like, I need people. I need people, like, to be able to talk to because that's how I deal with things. And... And I think one of the reasons why I love this advocacy work so much is because I get to give, you know, give so much to other people who who might also not feel like they have anyone. And I think that's so powerful because there'll be a lot of people listening who um, feel like they don't have their people and, and don't let me put words in your mouth. But when you were growing up, you struggled to find your people. You said you struggled to find that place where you belonged. And so I think that too gives hope to people that there's always going to be someone out there that cares. Sometimes you've got to take the courageous step to pick up the phone and say, I need help. Yeah. Everybody has a place in the world, you know? And I guess I think about it, I'm like, look at everything that I've been able to do just by stepping off the edge, (laughs) giving myself a chance, you know, and leaning on hope. Because hope is is a powerful thing, <laughs> you know. It allows you to look beyond what's currently happening in your immediate world, you know, and it allows you to see a future full of possibilities. And I think we, you know, we all need someone to give us that hope. If if at times we we can't produce it ourselves. Yeah, and let's hold that hope for anyone that's listening to this episode today feeling like they have none until they find it within themselves. What do you think your younger self would have thought? <laughs> I don't have the words for it, but um, if it's okay with you, can I share a quote that I think, and you know... I would love to hear. I'm a quote girl. Please share your quote with <laughs> I th- me. I think it encapsulates what, I, what I'm trying to say from this amazing poet that I follow on social media called Deman, Deman, and it says... Um, When you are struggling, when you are going through hard days, remember this. The person you are going to become someday will be thankful that you did not give up on yourself today. Even if you do not feel like it, you have the strength to overcome anything. You just need to believe in yourself. What a beautiful, beautiful way to end this episode. I just think that is incredible and it sums up everything that you are and the journey that you've been on and as I've said I am so excited about this impact this episode will have I think Um, there'll be a lot of people that that feel heard you'll be a lot of people's gym for this episode (laughs) Um, I think Jim sounds like an incredible man and we're just so lucky to have you thank you so much Michelle I feel like I could talk to you for literally hours and we (laughs) will at some point but I'm I'm incredibly inspired and honoured that you chose to sit down with me with Voices of Hope today to have this conversation Hey listener, thank you for sticking with us through this episode today I want to remind you that you're not alone in your fight and that if you need to talk to someone you can find a list of support in the show notes 
And that was a moment with. If you want to know more about Voices of Hope, you can head to our website, thevoicesofhope.org, or find us on all social platforms at Voices of Hope. A huge thank you to the Lindsay Foundation, who made a moment with possible.